Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Today's show is a preview of a mini-series coming in a few months, where I'll be speaking with some of the preeminent leaders in private equity to learn more about what the continuing insatiable interest in the asset class is all about. My guest is Paul Salem, a Senior Managing Director Emeritus at Providence Equity. Providence is a premier private equity and asset management firm focused on media, communications, education, software, and services with $49 billion in asset commitments. Paul joined Providence when it was a $171 million media-focused boutique in 1992 and became an integral part of the firm's growth and success ever since until retiring a year ago. 
Paul considers himself the luckiest guy in the world, which you can hear more about in a TED Talk he delivered a few years ago. Our conversation covers Paul's entry to the business, the benefits of specialization, Providence's nice guy advantage, and the development of the firm over three decades. We then turn to the competitive landscape for deals, value of operating partners, evolution of private equity, advice for allocators in the space, and life after stepping away from the business. Please enjoy my conversation with Paul Salem and stay tuned for the mini-series of Masters in Private Equity. Please enjoy my conversation with Paul Salem and stay tuned for the mini-series Private Equity Masters. Paul, thanks so much for doing this with me. Well, good to be here, Ted. Thank you for having me. Why don't you take me back to when you first joined Providence way back in the early 90s and what was the firm like then and what was the private equity world like then? Well, actually, it goes back to Harvard Business School, where I graduated in 1991, and we're in the middle of a Gulf War, and it was three of us. I remember sitting at the gym at Shad Hall and at Harvard Business School, and I kept on telling everybody that I'm going into leveraged bios. You know, private equity wasn't even really the word. And there was two other guys, we were sitting around, and I think I got a prize because I actually got the most interviews of anyone at private equity firms. And I actually couldn't get a job. And, <laughs> and I'll never forget, I was sitting in a hot tub with a buddy of mine. And there was this firm in Connecticut called Kid Cam. Two guys, one named Kid, one named Cam. And I interviewed with them. And then there was another firm called McCowan Duluth. And I was interviewing with them. And it turns out my buddy and I were both interviewing with both. I'm thinking, all right, maybe he gets one, I get one. And that would be great. And so we were both interviewing at McCowan Duluth. They interviewed us 13 different times and they had us do a psych test. And so my buddy said, geez, you know what? Anyone interviews you for 13 straight times and they can't make a decision. I don't think I want to work there. He got the job offer. He turned it down like he said he would. I'm thinking I'm in. So then I don't hear for a week, week and a half goes by, call up the firm and they say, well, we reviewed your psychological profile and we decide you wouldn't be a good fit for this firm. And so I didn't even get the job. So I was like, oh, that sucked. <laughs> I ended up graduating Harvard Business School without a job. And like most smart people, I decided to go to Thailand with my girlfriend and go scuba diving. And I figured, oh, you know what, I'll figure something out. And we're diving all through the Pacific Ocean, went to a place called Palau and Truck Lagoon, did these amazing dives, flying back through Bangkok Airport. I went to an ATM to take out 50 bucks. and I had insufficient funds. I was like, oh man, this is bad. <laughs> and I didn't have a job. I had no money. And I called Morgan Stanley Collect because they had offered me a job in January at Harvard Business School. I turned it down and I called them Collect because I knew the person who would answer was this receptionist named Teresa. And whatever reason, she always liked me and I was always super friendly to her. She manned the switchboard. So collect call from Paul Salem and Teresa picked it up and she was so excited to talk to me. She didn't even think about taking on the charges. And I said, Hey, you got to put me in touch with this woman who offered me a job last January. Cause I thought I was going to get a job in private equity. And she says, well, you know, Paul, I made 10 offers and nine accepted you the only one not to accept. So I shouldn't do this, but I'll offer you a job. Can you be in New York next week? And I was in Bangkok I was like, yeah, I hopped on a plane and lived on my buddy's couch and joined Morgan Stanley. 
And I was at Morgan Stanley for nine months and I just hated every minute of it. I just knew I didn't want to be a banker. I wanted to be an investor. And I had met the guys at Providence Equity right before business school. This guy named Jonathan Nelson and Greg Barber, and they were going to go out and raise a, a private equity fund, and they were going to be specialists in media. And the reason why I knew about them is because my job before Harvard Business School was working for Prudential Insurance Company. And Prudential Insurance Company was the biggest institutional investor investing in the very first private equity funds. And when I was at Pru, I happened to be lucky enough to be working with a, a guy who was funding KKR, Blackstone, and then over in London, Electric Handover and Schroeder Ventures. And so I'm this junior guy going to meetings and Prudential's giving 50, $100 million checks to these LBO guys. And I would say to my boss, go, why are you doing this? He says, well, we'll get deal flow. When they would buy a company, Pru would do the senior debt, the subordinated debt, and even a piece of preferred. And then I would do the model and I would say, wait, wait, if this deal goes great, Prudential gets all their debt paid back. And then these guys get this thing called the carried interest and they make a ton of money. And my boss literally goes, Paul, you don't want to be me. You want to be them. And that's all I needed to know. And from that moment on, I wanted to be in private equity. So I'm about to go to Harvard Business School and I see that Prudential's committing $50 million to these guys that used to be at Narragansett Capital now starting their own firm. And the firm was called at the time Providence Ventures. So two of them went to Brown. I thought, wow, they went to Brown Harvard Business School. I go up and see them. And I literally, my pitch was, I will not go to business school. I will come work for you. And my partner, Jonathan Nelson said, listen, I got $50 million commitment from Pru. Why don't you go to business school and then keep in touch? So I was thinking, okay, it's a polite blow off, but yet they really were just starting. So I go to Harvard Business School and I call them after the first year and they said, you know, fundraising is not going as well as we thought. They still had 50 million from Pru. And then I graduate from Harvard Business School and Literally, they still only had 50 million from Pru. I think my partners had done a thousand meetings and had a thousand no's. They just couldn't raise money because, you know, first time fund is hard. And so when I graduated from business school, they weren't hiring anyone because there was no fund. I would call 401 751 1700, which was the phone number. I would just call it. And I would talk to a receptionist. I'd talk to occasional one of the two partners I knew. And I'd say, hey, how's fundraising going? I'd say, well, it's still not there. <laughs> so after about nine months at Morgan Stanley, they had raised $171 million. And I was on a road show for Morgan Stanley. We were taking Food Maker Public. It was Jack in the Box and Chi-Chi's Mexican Food. And I got the phone call saying, hey, we're actually interested in bringing you on board at Providence Ventures. And I called my boss at Morgan Stanley and I said, hey, I just helped complete this food maker IPO. I'm quitting. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm going to this place called Providence Ventures. And he goes, why are you doing that? Why do you want to be a, a small fish in a small pond when you can potentially be a big fish in a big pond here in New York? I said, well, I think I'm just a small fish type of guy. And it was funny because we just finished the road show and I'd never been in a private plane before, but we were doing the roadshow in a private plane. And, 
And I said to my boss, I go, listen, I just dropped these guys off in their headquarters in San Diego. I got this private plane. What should I do with it? And he kind of said, well, I don't know. Do what do you want? The plane's coming back to New York. So I had the plane drop me off in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Las Vegas, which is the first time I'd ever been to Las Vegas, which will end up tying back into now being the chairman of the board of the largest casino company in Vegas. And then I ended up going to Providence. At the time, it was called Providence Ventures, became Providence Equity Partners. And there were two founding partners. And then this other guy who just graduated from Harvard Business School a couple of years before me named Glenn Kramer. And then me. And I was the junior guy. And we had $171 million. And the name of the fund was Providence Media Partners because we were going to be specialists in media. And I really didn't have a media background, but my partners had been big in cable TV and broadcast TV, and we started getting into cellular communications. And our first deal at Providence Equity, as we committed $10 million to a company called Pacific Northwest Cellular, and we were backing a guy named John Stanton. And John used to work for Craig McCaw. And John had the silly idea that farmers in rural parts of America would want cell phones. And he bought up all these licenses in the Pacific Northwest for nothing. And it became Western Wireless. Western Wireless, he sold for $18 billion to Altel. <laughs> but he also started a company with our money and a couple other investors, a company called VoiceStream. And we went out and bought Spectrum in the auctions against the big guys, Verizon, AT&T. And VoiceStream was sold to T-Mobile for $50 billion. And that's when I learned early on that when you back the right CEO, and John Stanton was the right CEO, you can make outsized returns. And that really helped put Providence Equity on the map. And our first fund was $171 million. Our next fund was $363 million. And then we went to $980 million, $2.2 billion. And then our fourth fund was $12 billion. And we just grew like crazy. And it was funny because no one thought being a specialist private equity investor was a good idea. And we were kind of the first to really be specialized. And I guess the one thing I guess we proved is having some kind of angle in investing really pays off. And now everyone's a specialist, get specialist energy funds, specialist this, but we were early pioneers in being specialist media partners and I'm going to hand it to my partners, Jonathan Nelson and Glenn Kramer for coming up with that idea. So when you think back to that specialty, right, there are business reasons to do it. As you said, there are sort of knowledge and network reasons to do it. What was the original impetus for why it worked? It was knowledge. And if we had just done cable TV, just that, we would have made a fortune as well. And just being really good in an industry that was a big user of capital, huge user of capital. And it was the right industry at the right time. And when you think of John Malone and what he did and Amos Hostetter at Continental Cable, we were just playing in that pool. And that turned out that pool was huge. Not only was it big in the United States, but I moved over to London 1999 to open up our European office. And we owned the most cable TV in Europe than anybody at the time. And we made more money in Europe on cable TV than we ever did in the United States. And we had a, just an amazing track record. And just in cable TV, we had an amazing track record in wireless communications. And then we started doing stuff like competitive access providers or CLEX. And because we were early in these industries, we were able to get outsized returns. 
And I think in today's private equity world, if you don't have a competitive advantage, it's really hard to make outsized returns. And people are doing it in software as a service now. And you're just seeing it all over that. If you don't have a competitive advantage, it's almost impossible to make an outsized return. Private equity is a great business. If you want to step back, I mean, think about it. I always say we get to buy companies with inside information. We sign an NDA. We get as perfect information as you possibly can get. We still make mistakes. Where a hedge fund is operating from the outside in, we're operating from the inside. And it's just a much better way to invest. I've always been a big believer that private equity is just a much, much better business than the hedge fund business. So I want to roll through a little bit of the evolution of Providence. You mentioned in this gap between fund three and fund four, you don't every day see, okay, we're growing, we're at 2 billion. Oh, now we're at 12 billion. And so what was going on then, like on the inside of the firm to give you the confidence that you could put that kind of money to work? You look back now, this was 2007. So we started raising money in 2006, 2007, the world's on fire, everything's going up and our returns were pretty good. They were spectacular. And I remember getting yelled at by LPs because we were cutting them back on the investment. We went out to raise $8 billion. So the funds kept on doubling and we had about 18 billion of demand. And we kept on just saying no. And it's almost like the more people say no, the more they want you. And it was just crazy days. And so did we take too much money? Yeah, probably. But it's hard if you look back and you say, did you make a mistake? And I guess what happens is the bigger you get, the harder it is to make the proper returns. And I see the same mistake everyone else is making because fund size just keep on getting bigger, bigger, bigger. And even Warren Buffett says size is the enemy of returns. But it's okay because if you make a double-digit IRR in today's world, you're doing pretty well. But I think size is, is hard to manage those outsized returns. And, and I've never done the analysis, but I'm sure the plenty of folks have done it. When you go from fund one to fund 10, you're going to have a dip in there. And you can look at all the firms that have had those dips. And we were one of them. And now we're back. Province Secretary is doing great now. And our fund size is about $6 billion. And so in that trajectory from four or five of you at 100 million and then 350 to four, eight, $12 billion funds, where did the growth internally come easily and where were there challenges along the way? Well, the funny thing is, is hiring folks to Providence, Rhode Island wasn't the easiest thing. Plenty of people to hire in New York and plenty of people to hire in Boston. And so my pitch used to be to the young guys and women, I said, live in Boston, take Amtrak. <laughs> and that's what they used to do. And to this day, they still, a lot of them commute from the Boston area. Because when you're young and single, Providence is a great place to raise a family, not the greatest place to be a young buck. And so it was actually hiring and growing the firm. It wasn't the easiest thing, but we made it work. And we got, we would never get the person who got the job offer from Blackstone or KKR. And, and we actually liked that. We got the hungrier and scrappier person. And I did a ton of the hiring and you hire a certain type of person, you can build a culture. And we always had this culture where we were kind of known as the good guys. We were the little guys from Providence. And, and whenever I would go head to head with a New York well-known private equity firm, we would always win because we were the nice guys. 
I always thought, you know what? We're going to be partners with these people. You better like them. They better like you. And it was amazing how private equity gets a bad rap because of the outsized egos. And the truth is, some of it's well-deserved. <laughs> and we just made a living being the nice guys. And maybe because we were in Providence, Rhode Island, and, and we kind of kept a low profile and we just did our job. And that worked out pretty well for us. And then we moved over to London. And still at that time, back in 1999, there were no specialist private equity firms. And so we were fishing in a pond that was just ripe for picking. I'm curious what the competitive landscape was like throughout in that you were specialists, but these are also very good businesses that other private equity firms might want to buy, participate in. So how did that play out over the years? Yeah, so it's a great example. We were never big enough to usually just write the check. So we always had to partner with folks. And so we would win over the entrepreneur before any non-specialized firm. And a great example is Goldman Sachs. We did more deals with Goldman Sachs PIA, you know, private equity division of Goldman Sachs than any other private equity firm because they knew we weren't a threat. We would win over the entrepreneur. It was funny. The very first deal we did, my partner, Jonathan Nelson, did it with John Stanton. He committed $10 million. He's the first person to commit to this guy, John Stanton. And then he went to two other firms. John was trying to raise $70 million. And one of the firms says, we'll do the 70 million or we won't do it. It's either us or nobody else. And then Goldman said to him, well, we'll, we don't know the problems, guys, but if you want them in for 10 million, sure. And was probably one of Goldman's best deals ever too. And yet we only committed 10 million. And it was that arrogance of that other firm that they missed out on one of the best deals in private equity history. And you still see that today because there's so much money. People always trying to elbow everyone out. It used to be a lot more collegial back then. And now it's a little more competitive. It's a lot more competitive now. Yeah. And there's just massive amounts of equity chasing deals. So I think today it's even more important. You need to have some kind of specialty niche. You just have to. So over the years within the media space, it started as Providence Venture and now much more well-known for growth and buyouts. What was that trajectory of what stage of companies you were investing in? Yeah. So as you write bigger checks, you were writing you're investing in later stage companies. And so we kind of grew up that way. And it's funny, I look back a lot and say, okay, was it smart to grow so fast? And I think the private equity firm that has outsized returns and stays at pick a number, a billion dollars and never grows, it's hard to attract young talent because the older folks get a little embedded and it's hard for the younger ones to break through. So the only way they can break through is if you keep on growing the firm. And that's the key is you got to keep on growing the firm. So people who say, well, we show discipline and we don't raise more money than we can manage. Most great firms just keep on getting money thrown at them. And it's almost hard to say no. And so we kind of grew up with that. And then back in 2007, we had raised a bunch of money and then the world fell apart in 2008 and nine. And so I think just good investing. We had this new big $12 billion fund and we were trying to figure out how to deploy it. And our own portfolio company's debt was trading at 60, 65 cents on the dollar, senior debt. And this is 2009. And I called up one of our LPs and I said, he's a close friend. And I said, listen, we have this $12 billion fund. Why wouldn't we just go buy some senior debt? No one knows the company's better than us. And I can get you 18 to 20% IRR. 
And if you're sitting at your desk, I'm going to send you an email right now. I'm going to list 10 Providence portfolio companies where the debt's trading. And if we just go buy the debt and it trades back up to par, you're going to make an 18.6% rate of return. I remember that because that's exactly what happened. We returned 18.6%. And I'll never forget this investor. He said, you know what? I'm a $50 million investor in your $12 billion fund. How about if I give you $200 million and start a debt fund? I was like, okay. I said, yes, let's do it. So that was on a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. And by five o'clock, I had called some of my best contacts and I'd raised $1.1 billion to go buy debt. And all I did was email a list of 10 portfolio companies. They could have gone out and bought it themselves if they wanted to, but we brought them the idea and they said, yeah, we'll invest in your uh, debt fund. And that's how we got into credit. And I can honestly tell you, I had never bought any debt in my life. We're sellers of debt. So I called up my friend, Tommy Gann, who was at Deutsche Bank. And I said, Tommy, I just raised $1.1 billion to go buy debt. Are you interested? And before I even said interested, he said yes. <laughs> and Tommy created with us our credit platform, which became Benefit Street Partners. That was the name of it, Benefit Street. Benefit Street is a, the nicest street up at Brown University. And my partner, Jonathan, Glenn, myself, and Tom again, all went to Brown. So we named it Benefit Street Partners. And we grew that into about a $25 billion business. And we sold it to Franklin Templeton. And it was a great trade for us and for Tommy and his team. And what started with just a way to buy cheap debt grew into a massive credit business. And that's how Providence became kind of a multi-asset manager. We also set up a little smaller boutique Providence Strategic Growth. We started them off with $300 million. My partner, Peter Wilde, and his college roommate, a guy named Mark Hastings, and they started buying software SaaS companies, software as a service companies. And they're already on their fourth fund, couple billion dollar fund, and they've just grown massively. So we've been able to grow the firm through different types of strategies. Again, more specialization. And that was always our thing, is get more and more specialized. Right before I retired, I started a Providence public hedge fund because I thought we had all this knowledge sitting in amongst the professionals. We'll look at a thousand deals a year. We do four. And so without getting inside information, but getting industry information, we set up a hedge fund with our own internal capital and the guy's done fabulously well. His returns have been off the charts. And so just another way of using knowledge and it's worked out for us. Let's talk a bit about the whole investment process today for private equity firms. So as you're looking out at this landscape, where is the balance of deals coming from? It's interesting. There's been a huge, up until just recently, it was always better to just raise money through private equity than go public. The last five years, valuations have been higher privately than they were publicly. And so if you're a CEO, why do you want the brain damage of being a publicly traded company? So you saw the Airbnbs and all these companies just stay private for a long time. Now the market's obviously going crazy and it's 30,000 Dow and even the Airbnbs are going public and the DoorDashes and the, those are all funded with private equity for a long time. And so when you think about the amount of money that was in private equity, it was really displacing some public equity. So there was plenty of deals to go around. Now you have the advent of the SPACs. And I always think of the SPACs, the public equity are competing with private equity. 
And SPACs used to be, well, if you couldn't actually get a real investor, you just go to a SPAC. Now it's a competitive source of capital. And I think SPACs aren't going away. And so I think there's even more competition. So I just think there's just one overarching fact here is returns have to go down. They just have to. Now, with cheap leverage, we've been able to pump returns up. And leverage is about as cheap as I've ever seen it. So where does the sourcing come from? Is everyone looking at the same set of public companies to take private, big private companies? There's been a lot of flipping of private equity companies to private equity companies. We're all guilty of that. We set up a group called Providence Strategic Growth. They have 30 young kids co-calling companies. And Summit Partners has been doing that for years and other firms have been doing it for years. I don't think there's a company in America that hasn't been called by a private equity firm. Capital allocators going to be getting pitched by private equity firms that don't even know what you do. They're just trying to, get you to, to return a phone call. What used to be a nice niche is now an asset class that is not only here to stay, it's a fabulous asset class. And anytime you can get a preferred return of 6 to 8% before you start sharing fees, that actually attracts pension money. That will, It will always attract pension money because they're sitting there going, hey, our hurdle rate's 7 8%. If I can get the preferred return out of a private equity guy before fees, that's not such a bad deal. Yeah. And why the 20% carried interest hasn't ever changed as far as we're not complaining. I mean, we used to have a 25% carried interest. But, you know, you would think it's so competitive that you could dial down the carried interest and investors would have more control. But they really don't because it's just there's so much capital out there chasing the good funds. And so the fee structure is really held strong. And I think when the Black Rocks are saying, oh, man, I got to get into private equity and they're building up their private equity, you'll see some of the big firms. I don't know, does Blackstone and BlackRock ever reunite someday? Talk about a killer, killer combination. You're going to see all that stuff happen. And I didn't think I'd ever see private equity firms go public. And so it's an asset class that is not only here to stay, but will just keep on getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And the returns, you can argue about the returns, but at the end of the day, they're still pretty good. What are some of your favorite stories that are kind of emblematic of what the deal dynamics look like when you're trying to compete to buy a company? I think my favorite deal, we were buying the phone company of Ireland called Aircom. And it was a state-run telephone company. So it was poorly run. And it had gone public. They'd sold off their wireless business. So they're left with this landline business. And we were trying to buy it for four to five times EBITDA. And so we partnered up with Sir Anthony O'Reilly, who was Mr. Ireland. And we were the telephone experts. And it was Providence Equity and George Soros and Sir Anthony O'Reilly. And we were the biggest check. And another Irish entrepreneur named Dennis O'Brien partnered with another private equity firm. And it was a, an Irish brawl. <laughs> um, you know, Tony O'Reilly owned the newspaper. So he would write about what a bad guy Dennis O'Brien was. Dennis O'Brien would go talk to another newspaper. And it was the first time I'd ever heard our deal was on the radio and people like screaming at each other. And 
because Ireland's such a small company. This was such an important company. And we worked so hard to win that deal and was publicly traded. So the highest bid won and we went out by a few pence. And it turned out to be a great deal for us, but it was a Donnybrook. And we would check into our hotel. One of my partners had his briefcase stolen because someone was trying to get information on what we were going to bid. And it was really something. And so I would go to Ireland once a month. And one of my favorite stories was the head of the union. It was a unionized workforce. And so we had to get rid of thousands of workers who literally just weren't doing anything. And so I had to negotiate with the head of the union. And he would only negotiate with me after he invited me to his, his pub. And I would have to drink a couple Guinness. And I am a complete lightweight. So after two Guinnesses, he's like, okay, now we can start negotiating. So I always thought the union got the best of me, but we made money. We made 2.3 times our money. And turns out it was coincidental. And we took it public again in 2.3 years and company, we invested a ton of capital. We brought in new management and it worked out well. And it worked out well for the Irish phone customers and it worked out well for us. And the union made some money as well. But that was a good old Donnybrook. In all the levers that you can pull as a private equity investor, where did you see your particular area of expertise? I and mean, you mentioned the financing. Obviously, that's an easy lever today. How about on the operational side? So I think the best thing we as a firm ever did was bring on either what we call operating partners or the true experts. In the example of Aircom, I brought an American guy over to be CEO. He was really COO because we wanted an Irish CEO. But we had worked with him in the United States. We brought him over to Ireland and he knew how to run a phone company. And we were able to attract some really great operating talent for me or Providence Equity. I always say, if you go into a board meeting and you know more than the CEO or you think you know more than the CEO, you got the wrong CEO. <laughs> because I used to go to board meetings and when we have great CEOs, you would learn a lot. And when I get the good fortune of talking to, whether it's a students at school or Harvard Business School or Stanford, and I always say, I think my best talent was like a headhunter. I found the right CEOs. A great CEO can turn an okay business into a good business. Bad CEOs can take a great business and ruin it. And I always thought if there was one lesson I've learned in private equity is making sure you have back the right CEO. And by the way, and we've probably done over a hundred and something deals. If you had a list of the hall of fame CEOs, it's not that big a list. And so finding those men and women is really the key. And some of it's luck. Some of it is just innate ability to find good people. How did you go about that process of searching for them? I was the type of guy that just always asked people who was their favorite boss. The best operating partner we ever had at Providence Equity was a guy named Barry Allen. He ran Ameritech, the phone company, and then he went to run Quest Communications when it was going belly up and he was called in to rescue it. And this is a Midwest guy, grew up in Milwaukee, and I've never seen him have such a way with people. He was just a true leader. We bought the Ironman group, the World Triathlon Corp, and we put Barry in there to go work with the CEO. He doesn't know anything about triathlons, but he knew about leadership. And any company that guy touched, I think he worked for seven of our companies. He was seven for seven. Every one of them was a good deal. He always said, I'm a translator between the CEO and the private equity guy. 
He goes, I know what real leadership is. You private equity guys, you know, finance. And I would go rely on a guy like a Barry Allen to make sure we, if I had a question about a CEO, I'd say, Barry, you got to go help me here. And if Barry thought the guy was a good CEO or the woman was a good CEO, I slept at night. When he didn't think it was, then I knew I had a problem. And Barry, you're just a tremendous guy. And of the 10 operating partners, three were good, three were mediocre, four were not so good. Not because they were bad people, they just didn't want to work. Barry wanted to work. So there's a little luck involved in that too. So as you built this up with your partners, you mentioned the word retire. What is that whole life cycle that you go through where you decide to step away really when the business is thriving? So I did it for 28 years, okay? And we had a run like, it was just an amazing run. It was awesome. And the last five to 10 years was just raising money mostly, right? And you're getting away from what you'd love the most, which is just being with entrepreneurs. About five years ago, I took my family on a sabbatical. We went around the world for seven months. And I realized after I came back that in seven months, our firm hadn't done a deal. It had nothing to do with me. We had plenty of great deal doers. But I'm thinking, I would have worked so hard during those seven months, and what would I have shown for it? And that's when I knew it was probably time to retire and give the young team an opportunity. And, and plus, as you get older, and you know, I always say I, I get fat and lazy, there is a time when you have to push out the senior partners. And so I was one that they were like, happy to see me free up some of my <laughs> economics. What other business in the world do you work your heart out, right? And then you just give away the equity to the younger generation. And that's just the way it always was. And then Blackstone decided to go public. And you realize that you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And Providence Equity was never one to, we weren't big enough to go public. We probably could have, but we liked our private lifestyle. And so we were the first firm to ever do a deal with Dial Capital as a private equity fund. And we did a deal where we sold a percentage of the general partner to a few LPs and to Dial Capital. And we didn't take the money out of the business. What we did is we left it in the business and we allocated that capital to the really the three main partners plus all the other partners and we said, listen, we're not taking the money out. We're keeping it in the firm. And everyone has their own now little bank account that says, this is your allocation of that money you got from the LPs. And what we did is we just invested it in our own deals. So we ended up investing more money in every deal, which really is the secret to private equity, is to be able to invest as much money as you can in your own deals. And I wish we had done that when we had a $171 million fund. If you put $20 million into Providence Equity and then never sold those companies, or you know, you just could roll them into the next fund. You could sell the company, but roll it into the next fund without paying capital gains tax. That 20 million would have grown to 2 billion. And it's very inefficient to invest in a deal, you own it for five years, sell it, pay taxes, and then redo it again. So what we did is we just wanna put more money in our deals and hold on to our best companies longer. And that was kind of like our retirement package. You just had more money invested, and I had more money invested in some great companies, and that's kind of like our payout. So for the next 10 years, I'll be getting paid out on our own personal investments in these companies, which is great. How do you structure the alignment of the duration that you would like to invest, as you say, longer and longer, from the structure of funds where the LPs 
are used to that kind of five-year turnaround. Yeah, it makes no sense. And why we all did it this way for years is you have a fund with a five or six-year investment period, five-year liquidation period. And you're starting to see these long-dated private equity funds now. It makes no sense to own a great company and sell it to Carlisle, right? And then we buy a company from them. Why not just own it yourself? And I think over the next 20 years, you're going to see that change in private equity where you're going to own your winners longer and you're going to find ways to pay out, in essence, carry halfway through the point because people still want to get paid. And I think LPs realize that the friction cost of flipping companies from one private equity fund to another makes no sense. So I think you're going to start seeing these longer dated funds. And I think that's good for the business. And everyone, if we were really all smart, we would have just been Warren Buffett, right? And just done it through a public vehicle and, and never pay taxes. But we weren't that smart. He's a lot smarter than us. So as you look out going forward, private equity in general, where do you see other opportunities for evolution? My crystal ball is a little cloudy on this one because it's an amazing asset class. It produces good returns. The advent of SPACs is going to cloud that crystal ball a little bit because that could become real competitive capital. And that will just make returns go down. And with every great idea in America or around the world, capital flows to great ideas. And the private equity business is a great business. And now you're starting to see the public guys saying, wait, why can't we be in the private equity business? And so they come up with a better form of SPACs now that is a little bit better alignment with the public investors. And that's just pushing prices up. So I do think private equity will have a dampening of returns, meaningfully dampening. But when the 10 years trading at 0.8%, maybe if returns are only single digit for private equity, that's still good enough. I just think returns have to come down. Where do you think a firm like your firm can make the changes that the investors desire? So you talk about these long duration structures as one, but it's not always easy to do, right, to get that alignment right for in the legal structure. Well, I don't have an answer. And the good news is it's not my firm anymore. Right? <laughs> we have these really terrific next generation team running it. And I think it's tough. I think what's going to happen is you're going to align yourself with certain LPs that have just massive amounts of capital. Ontario Teachers Pension Plan was one of our first investors and they were with us for just massive amounts of capital for five or six funds. And they were just a great investor and an LP to have. And you're going to see, I think, people partnering with these big sources of capital and and almost become in-house private equity teams for them because every big asset allocator now wants to have their own private equity team. And so if they structure it the right way, maybe that's how you can get real long-term capital and still pay the team the right amount of money. And if you were sitting on the other side, if you're an LP looking at different funds and you're not one of these megas, but you have real capital, you may have a few billion dollars or whatever the case may be, how would you think about asking the right questions to tease out the differences between a couple different private equity funds? Well, every private equity fund is top quartile, every single one of them. So <laughs> it's amazing how you can have every fund be top quartile. It's a people business, okay? And every firm has a culture. And when I was interviewing 
prospective employees or partners at Providence, I said, come, come spend a day with our firm and then go spend a day with other firms. 100% of the time, you will get a sense of the culture of that firm. 100%. And that either fits your personality or doesn't fit your personality. And I think the same way with LPs. Every firm has a personality and every firm has a drive and a hunger. And you can feel that. And I know that Apollo's personality is different than Providence Equity's personality. And by the way, Apollo's fabulous investors. Amazing. But a different personality. And our firm is different than other firms. And so I think you really have to match the people with what the LP is looking to get. A lot of LPs want co-invest. Smart way for an LP to invest. Invest in the fund and get co-invest. No fee co-invest. You're just managing down your fees, right? That's a great way to invest. And so some LPs will congregate to people who know that will they're not too big that they'll offer co-invest. I think you're going to see a lot of that stuff. What do you think ultimately are the success factors? You've mentioned that your old firm, you were the nice guys. And you don't always think of the nice guys in a deal business, right? You know, like you think about winning and competing. Where have you seen different firms drive success in different ways? So the Toma Bravo, they were reincarnated Providence Equity. We started off as specialists. They took it to a whole new level, Vista, whole new level. And so you know, you're getting more and more specialized. And I think two things, you have to pick the right industries. Now, Providence Equity picked some great industries. Wireless communication, cable TV, starting in the early 90s. Come on, we had to make money. We should have made money. People who got into software as a service early, just the right time, right industry. So you have to have the right firm, right specialization at the right cycle. And then you can make outside returns. And then you have guys like Blackstone who just can raise money like no one else. And then they have some really smart people and they still have, they don't have the best returns in the business, but they have good returns. And that, a lot of people are happy to invest in what I would call the private equity index fund. They're doing just fine. But I do think specialization in the right industry at the right time in the right industry will get you absolutely outsized returns. And what's your take on the advantages or disadvantages of middle market private equity? We were classic middle market until we weren't. And now there's firms that are lower middle market. Or if you look at a group of companies in an industry, and you see enough opportunities, I don't care if it's middle market, venture, but you're in the right cycle in the right industry, you can invest right along that early stage, middle market stage, late stage, you're going to make money the whole way. You just are. You have to be in the right industries. It's no different than the companies that crushed it during COVID. If you bought Zoom stock in March, you're really happy right now. I'm a terrible public market investor, so I didn't buy Zoom, but boy, I also didn't buy Peloton, and I love my Peloton, but you're in the right space at the right time. You're making outsized returns, whether it's private or public markets. How do you think about that relative to valuation? I scratch my head when it comes to valuation. I own, actually own two Teslas. It's a great car. It's an awesome car. How can it be worth 500 and something billion dollars? But it doesn't matter. I'm not a public market investor. You've seen the same thing in private equity. Everything used to be a valuation based on EBITDA. We're slowly getting to valuations based on revenue. 
And the only reason why you do it based on revenue is because you can't do it based on EBITDA because there is no EBITDA. So valuations are just creeping up. And I think that's just a function of the market that we're in today. So you stepped away not too long ago. And how did you think about the rest of your working days? Because you're, you're not quite over the hill yet. I just turned 57. I took a year to just think. And I'm chairman of the board of an amazing nonprofit called Year Up. And Year Up takes inner city kids, urban young adults, and we get them jobs in places like Facebook, Google, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. These are, these are young adults that have never put on a suit before, maybe have a high school degree. They're just in dead-end jobs or they're going nowhere. And we get these hungry kids. We train them for six months and get an internship for six months. And we get them a job at J.P. Morgan. And they're walking to work with a suit on. And we change these young men and women's lives. And 60 Minutes did a great piece on Europe three or four years ago. I've been involved for 20 years. We've grown it from one office in Boston. I set up the second office in Providence. And now we're in 20 plus cities around the country serving over 5,000 young adults a year. Not giving them a handout, giving them a hand up. And that's what Year Up's all about, just giving people a chance. And what we found is we had over 200 interns at State Street. And what we found is State Street would bring in these young Year Up kids and they would work their butts off and then end up staying for four, five, six years versus hiring the Boston College grad who would get trained, last for seven months and leave. And so we were proving that it wasn't only good for these young adults, but it's actually good for the companies because we could prove to them they were losing money by hiring the, the hotshot from Harvard. And so it was like getting these hungrier young folks that really just wanted to be there. 90% of the year up students are students of color. And so it took us 20 years, but now we have every major corporation calling us saying, we need help. We need to employ these urban young adults. I started focusing on philanthropy. I became chairman of the board a year up, really got excited about that, did a couple other nonprofit things. And then I realized, boy, what I still miss is the deal business. I lasted all of a year of not doing deals. And I set up my family office, hired a couple folks to uh, help me. And we bought seven companies in the last six months. And it doesn't matter to me how well these companies do, but it matters to the entrepreneurs. And I love it. I just absolutely love it. What I miss most is watching these entrepreneurs' lives change because of the capital that we put behind them. What stage companies are these that you're doing in your family office? All different stages. I guess I've been in the business long enough. Deals just find me. One company, the guy makes signs. And he sought me out because he wanted me as a partner to help him give him business advice. I put in a million and a half bucks in I bought a small percent of his business and his business is more than tripled. And to see his life change is just awesome. And you know what? I'm going to make three or four times my money because we're in the process of selling the company. And I'm like, wow, this is great. But to see him literally become very wealthy and he's going to put a bunch of money. He has a kid that's autistic and he's going to start doing research on autism. I mean, you can see, just the great things that happen when there's a good exit like that. So I just love doing stuff like that. 
I own a bakery where we have a high-end bakeries in Rhode Island. They were doing great until COVID. And because thankfully we have deep pockets, we kept them alive and they'll do great again, but they certainly haven't done great in the last six months. But if you ever come to Providence, you go to seven stars bakery, I guarantee you have the best coffee and the best pastry you'll ever have in your life. We do food really well in Rhode Island. And then, you know, you started off with your random escapade on a private jet to uh, Vegas. I know you're spending a little bit of time with one public company. Yeah. So I became chairman of the board of MGM Resorts International and the chairman of the board of the MGM Growth Properties, our REIT. And we were doing great until COVID came along and we had a furlough of 63,000 employees, which we have great leadership at MGM, but that's just, just an empty feeling. And it's really sad because some people like Vegas, some people hate Vegas, but 43 million people a year go there. And to actually see the streets empty during COVID, it's sad. It's no different than seeing the streets of New York empty. And we're a destination resort. So until people feel comfortable traveling, Vegas doesn't work without conventions too. When are people going to do a convention? So Our stock's done quite well recently because vaccines are proving to be very effective. And then Vegas will always come back. And it's fun. I really enjoy being intellectually stimulated. We had an activist investor join the board, and that's kind of interesting to see how that whole thing plays out. We had Barry Diller buy a billion dollars worth of stock in the open market, and now he's on the board. So I've actually been fortunate to be around some really smart people. And it'll be interesting to see... As I say, for all your listeners out there, COVID will end. <laughs> Don't ask me when. All right, Paul, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. Just one more before we do that. As you look back on this 28 plus year run, what do you think were the biggest drivers of your success? I think I mentioned it before, the unique ability to partner with great CEOs. We were in the right industries. And if you partner with the right CEO in the right industry, you're going to do great. And I'm really happy that we found some amazing CEOs. I'm like a coach, right? You're as good as your players. Bill Belichick's a great coach, but we still wish Tom Brady was around. (laughs) And having great CEOs makes the coach look better. Great. All right, Paul, I'm going to turn to a couple closing questions here. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? If I could do a sport every day, and I don't care what kind of sport, tennis, squash, biking, golf. I still play ice hockey. Anytime I can play a sport and be competitive, it's a better day. What's your most important daily habit? Well, that's a good one. Sounds weird, but I take long, hot showers every morning and I think. And it's the most quiet time. And you wouldn't believe how many great ideas I've come up with in a shower. The water's pounding down on you, and I'm telling you, it's just that quiet time, and you let your mind just go. It's almost like meditating, but you're doing it in a nice hot shower. Yeah, all right. What's your biggest pet peeve? I hate people who complain. We live in America, the greatest country in the world. We're lucky people, and this is a country where if you work hard, it will pay off. And there's organizations like Year Up that some of the less fortunate that don't have a chance you hook up with the right organization, you will do well. And I just, I don't have a lot of patience for people who complain. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So I did a TED Talk on being lucky. 
And my dad was the most positive individual I've ever met in my life. And if you ever want to listen to my TED Talk, go to Paul Salem TED Talk. And you're going to hear me talk about luck because I truly believe I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And I've had this amazing run. And my dad told me I was lucky since I was born and he brainwashed me. So I literally believe I'm the luckiest person in the world. And who's to argue? It's worked out. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I learned it pretty early, but I don't think you could ever learn it early enough is be confident. If you don't believe in yourself, why would anyone else believe in you? And don't worry what other people think. Believe in yourself. Be a good person and believe in yourself. And it's amazing what will happen. All right. What is your biggest investment pet peeve? Momentum investing. It's a good deal because the last one was a good deal and the next one's going up and it keeps on going up. And somehow when the music stops, there's no such thing as momentum. And I've made that mistake. I've invested in industries that you knew it was kind of at the end of a run, but you took another shot and we blew it. Uh, what's been your biggest mistake and what'd you learn from it? We invested in a company. This was kind of early in the internet cycle and it was a comparison shopping company. And one of my partners was excited about the deal. And right before it closed, the company kind of got shut down by Google. And there's always Google risk. And we thought, boy, this is weird. And so we went and talked to our connections at Google. And for whatever reason, they had shut it down. But they said, oh, no, no, that was, we'll start it up again. And everything's fine. And I thought, I had one sleepless night saying, well, if they could get shut down overnight by one person, why are we investing in this company? But we invested and we lost all our money. What was the lesson from that? Go with your gut. My gut was saying, don't do it. But the deal momentum had already happened. There's a couple people pushing to get the deal done. And my gut was saying, you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. But yet we did it. And in good private equity investors, they remember their bad deals more than their good deals. I just hate losing money. And some of the bad deals we've done, they still stick with me. And I'm like, how stupid could we have done? How do you think about like improving the decision-making process when you're in that ninth inning of getting a deal done? It's groupthink that kills you. And when you're sitting at Harvard Business School and you got your 90 best buddies telling you how to do something, and there's that one person who's off in the corner saying, well, did you think about this? That's the person to listen to. Groupthink kills investment committees. That's how people get sucked into bad deals. All right, Paul, one more. What is your favorite book? I'm looking at it right now. It's Shantaram. I don't know if you ever read Shantaram, but it is an amazing book about this convict from Australia that escapes to the slums of India. And I happened to be reading this book while I was traveling in India with the family during our sabbatical around the world. And just read the book. It's a book about perseverance. It's a book about a guy that lied. He lied that he was a doctor. He was an ex-con, but he helped all these people. And it's just an amazing book. Great. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ted. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.